0: You are listening to My Activism Story by Amnesty International Nigeria. Right here, we'll unpack the personal stories of Nigerian frontline activists, civil societies and policymakers while exercising their civic responsibilities. One thing is sure, you've been inspired and awakened to be champions of human rights. Let's dive in.
1: In this episode titled Sometimes We Must Be Alone Voice, our guest is Osai Ojigo, a respected voice in the human rights space. Osai shares her personal experiences and her unwavering dedication in advocating for the voices of citizens to be heard and acknowledged.
2: Everybody was on the same page when we called out the violations by Boko Haram or ISWAP or JAS or all these numerous groups around the country. But when it came to the military, there was overwhelming silence. Um, And I remember at one point, it became even a personal attack. Um, We've had protests in front of Amnesty International Nigeria's offices. We were the first to actually come out and say at least 10 people died at Lekki, and two in Alausa. This lady went on air and said, mentioned my name and said, we would met onto you. Yeah, the same assault that led to the riots after the NSAS um, Toolgate saga. And everybody was calling me from everywhere. Oh, are you safe?
1: Let's go into the real question, right? What inspired you to become a human rights activist?
2: Oh, that's a very deep question um, because I was not a typical activist type person, even at home. I, was, I, I like to make peace, I'm more of a peacemaker, I don't like trouble at all. Um, but I've always been someone that was very um, upset about injustice, like when something is done and it's so unfair. I will speak out about it, maybe not necessarily about my own case, but about the cases of others. They say, oh, but that's not right, you know, you could do better. But the changing point for me actually was learning about people's lives being impacted by letters um, written by Amnesty International members and others. And this was when I was at the University of Lagos uh, as an undergraduate in the Faculty of Law sometime between 1990 and 1996 when I was actively a member of the Amnesty Chapter. And what struck me was the fact that we could actually make a difference by joining other people all over the world to, you know, tell governments, please release this this person. But even at that, for me, it was just writing those letters, attending Amnesty Chapter meetings. It was a life-changing experience while I was an intern at the International Criminal Court in The Hague in 2004 that kind of shifted me into this trajectory. So being at the International Criminal Court, engaging with the files that we had to deal with, I was shocked. You know, when you're in your own little bubble, you don't know what else is happening elsewhere. And the court was being um, set up to address international crimes. But more importantly, it was going to, one of his first cases was going to be the case of Northern Uganda. And Uganda is just next door to Nigeria. Yes, it's in East Africa, but it's just around the corner. And I was shocked to learn about the kinds of atrocities that have been committed in the country's civil war, if we can call it that, or insurgency, as we now have also in Nigeria with Boko Haram, and that victims and witnesses will be coming to the court. So even though by the time I finished my internship, we had not started receiving the victims and witnesses, my work was then uh, with the Victims and Witnesses units to ensure that the court was ready to receive them. We had the correct policies and procedures in to ensure that they are, pro- they are protected while they are in The Hague to give their testimony. They were able to link up with relevant legal advisors and their lawyers and could participate because right now we are not thinking about a more victim-centered approach to uh, investigation and prosecution. And I told myself I can't go back to Nigeria and become a corporate lawyer. I have to do something like this is terrible. We should make sure this does not happen again. So that was the turning point.
1: Wow, interesting. It's good to know. It's good to know that people, um, people like you, you know, still have passion for that. Like you said something about, you know. People being the bo- like in the in the world of their own, not knowing the atrocities being committed and all. Ah, it's quite it's quite interesting. Ah, well good. If you could tell us more about your 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 role then, what you did then, uh, working with Amnesty International Nigeria.
2: So, um, I was with Amnesty International for six years as the um, country director of Amnesty International Nigeria. My role was to oversee the research campaigns, advocacy, and human rights education work that was being deployed in Nigeria, and also to make sure that Nigeria had a strong voice within the amnesty movement. Another key part of my role was representational, like um, attending to meetings with the diplomatic community, with the country um, representatives. the relevant state agencies, which was always a very tricky one, because they saw Amnesty as being very critical of the government of the day. So those meetings were always quite awkward, because they feel like they need to see us the way they see other uh, international organizations. But they were very cautious around Amnesty because they know that we would say the truth and speak truth to power, regardless of what happens. So they were always like, we would not say so much. But we would have this engagement, so that you know that we are trying our best. And then they would always say things like, oh, why can't you do a little bit more to talk about what we are doing well? Um, so my, another part of my role was also meeting with um, supporters. Um, our donors um, engaging with civil society organisations, the press, media, meeting with human rights defenders to see how things were going and where Amnesty could be strategically placed. It was important that Amnesty International took on strategic cases that can have an impact for the greater good and to lead in areas which Amnesty does so well. And one of that is our research and. Um, it's one of the you know biggest contributions we can do as a well-known human rights um, organization.
1: As a woman, like that occupied that particular position, how did you feel? what was you know the reception? like and what were also the challenges? How did you overcome that too? Yes
2: people were always surprised. In fact, even in my final year, even as I was leaving Amnesty and people discovered that I was a director and people said it was a woman, you know, uh, because first of all, my name is unisex. So when people hear outside, they're expecting to see a man. Um, And then when um, they see the reports and they see how strongly worded um, our recommendations are, they automatically assume that it has to be a brave courageous man that has, you know, made, brought everything all together. So the first reaction is always surprise, shock, and then fascination then they get really confused as to how to approach you. Because when you deal about tough issues like extrajudicial executions, that's involving blood, involving um, disappearance, involving families who are distraught, looking for their um, loved ones. You are commenting about mass atrocities. Those are really tough issues that can get people emotional and get people charged one way or the other. So sitting across with um, an agency and telling them that, look, this is what Amnesty has discovered, um, telling government that these are unacceptable practices and violations that have been occurred by its own forces or its failure to act has led to further abuses and violations makes them feel that it has to be someone who is punchy. So here I am, I walk into the room and to them, they're like, where's your director? And I tell them, I am the director. And that even they start adjusting themselves. So you find that already I am dealing with institutions that are used to receiving men in such positions. They know how to prepare for them um, and sometimes might feel uncomfortable addressing these issues with a woman or believing that the woman can actually make decisions. And she's the final authority on that. So I have to constantly be alert to make sure that I am clear uh, to avoid misunderstanding, and that to reassure communities. Because community, so it's both ways. So you have state agencies who are like, oh, is this a person that we need to deal with? Okay, how do we approach this? Then you have communities who also want to be confident that Amnesty International can, you know, deliver on what we say we 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 plan we intend to do so it's important to build confidence both ways but it can be very draining because you're constantly in the eye people are watching you people are second guessing you uh, people are asking questions like and sometimes they mean well but because these are cultural and in already part of us this gender bias they'll ask things like oh are you sure is this the way we should go and sometimes if you're not careful, you could get really annoyed because you're like, but I was clear. I said it. We're going left. Can we move now? But you don't also want to come across as being insensitive. There's also that tendency for people to see a woman leader and expect you to be their mother, to have motherly tendencies. When you don't exhibit that, they become even hostile to you. Like, oh, can not she see how other women are? Why can't she be more understanding? But first and foremost, you're a leader. You are a manager, Um, you are somebody who takes decisions, and so people should accept you regardless of whether you are a man or a woman, and rather should follow um, the processes that have been laid out in order to ensure that we can work efficiently together. But clearly it was, it was a push and pull factor, constantly. And, even, and it didn't even matter whether I was meeting men or women. It's just something that um, some people are not accustomed to. Uh, but the highlights is meeting young women who are in awe and who come, like, if, if I speak at a meeting and then come over and say, like, if you can be director of amnesty, ah, that means I can be a minister. That means I can head a company. That means I can do a business because you're doing it. You make it look so seamless. We know it's not easy, but it has motivated me to do so much more. And I think we should we need to encourage more women and girls to take their place in society.
1: Uh, you've done you did a lot while with Amnesty International, and then I'm sure there are many success stories. So how then do you measure the impact? your activism
2: so how we measure impact is um, diverse Uh, most people like numbers so they want you to roll numbers and say oh we trained uh, while I was there we trained 10,000 schools and things like that for me I like to see impact in improvement in people's lives which oftentimes you cannot actualize in numbers but you can showcase so for example Um, Over the years, Amnesty had worked, even before I joined them in 2017, with um, communities, informal settlements. In some areas, they might call them slums, Uh, in some others, they might call them um, illegal structures. But definitely communities that had lived for a long time in certain areas, which suddenly now become affluent, and they don't want those informal structures to exist. And these guys went to court in Lagos and they got judgment although their abode had been demolished and we were working with them to see how they can first of all reclaim their property uh, be restored or government to compensate them for their loss and it's very easy to say oh those people um, as at um, April, as at uh, december 2020 we're still trying to get the Lagos State government to restore them. This is the community in Ilubirin and uh, in Lagos State, in the Riverine side of Lagos State, to restore them. But in the period between 2016 and 2022, they had organized themselves. They had formed small pressure groups. Uh, They had developed plans and even done proposals in their various networks to showcase how riverine communities can continue to thrive in Lagos, even as it's developing its numerous structures. And they've even trained many of their young men and women to be advocates and to claim their rights. That didn't happen before 2016, and yes, they've not gotten what they want yet. But the communities are stronger, better, more knowledgeable than before. It also means that they would be in a better position to resist such kinds of violations in the future because they know what to do, they've engaged. Um, a number of them were involved in protests in 2016, 2017, 2018. They were tear gas. There was a time when they went to National Assembly. Amnesty International staff were with them and they were beaten, driven away, and told, you know, don't come back. But they have reorganized, they've petitioned the special um, rapporteur responsible for housing at the UN, also at the African regional level. So these were things they possibly could not have conceived um, prior to 2016, but which they are doing now. Another way to measure the success of uh, projects and uh, that were done during my tenure is also the awareness of people about Amnesty International. Um, the the way Amnesty is organized, we also have regional office. So Nigeria falls under the West and Central Africa region. There was a survey done sometime in 2018 or 2019, which was to find out from people their perception, like, oh, do you know Amnesty? Can you recognize the brand? And they did it across West Africa, the country that had the highest number of people, percentage-wise. So we're not looking at numbers now. So they looked at the percentage of people they interacted with that were able to recognize the brand and know the work Amnesty was doing. The largest number was in Nigeria. Because they said our work was visible, they said they were able to articulate um, in um, clear language the work we did, they were also able to argue in the areas where we were lacking. And that was quite interesting feedback for us. It also enabled us to refine some of the work we were doing. Um, Also, another way is um, the impact of the work. Um, There was a case involving a young man, um, I recall in 2022, who had insulted the first lady of Nigeria um, on social media. He was taken up. When Amnesty picked up the case and raised alarm and urgent action, he was released um, in less than a week. And many people could link it to the fact that Amnesty International drew attention to, to that case. And I'll end with this point about the Twitter ban. Yes, the Twitter ban happened um 2021 and we were locked out for about nine months. Uh, Amnesty was one of those that went to court um, and it was the ban was lifted before judgment, but the judgment clearly spoke to the issues that Amnesty was saying, which is it shouldn't have been banned in the first place. So that just shows the influence that Amnesty has put at High level, local level, and at the minutest, which is the individual's life. So you can imagine, it's it depending on how you look at it and how it's measured. It's really about what difference has been positive in this person's life.
1: What are the pressing human rights issues facing Nigeria today? What do you think it is?
2: I think we should frame the issues now around socioeconomic rights. It's very easy to look at the pain people are facing in society, but the root causes are about people's dignity. So yes, the constitution says everyone has a right to dignity. Uh, The international treaties Nigeria has ratified also speak to that. Um, But we've not paid so much attention on people's socioeconomic rights, their right to health, their right to healthy environment, to livelihoods, um, and to education. Right, um, It requires investment in these sectors. But more importantly, if we can see the link between poverty and vulnerability for human rights violation, then we'll begin to address the core issues of human rights um, abuses in Nigeria.
0: You are listening to my activism story by Amnesty International Nigeria.
1: Interestingly, this episode is titled, Sometimes We Must Be a Lone Voice. Was there at any point in time you resonated with this? Oh wow, <laughs> uh, there were
2: quite a number of times because um, if I look at the work uh, we did as Amnesty on the Northeast East, for a long time. We were the only ones talking about military violations consistently. Yes, people might mention it and say, okay, the military invaded a village. Uh, To, To a large extent, the military now said we were rehashing the stories because there were violations regularly. And each time we'll come out and call it out. Everybody was on the same page when we called out the violations by Boko Haram or ISWAP or JAZZ or all these numerous groups around the country. But when it came to the military, there was overwhelming silence it was also much more uh lonely when you are the one on tv being harassed by um the military spokesperson or the media asking you pointed questions have you checked your research are you sure uh were you there you know and you're trying to explain how amnesty's methodology Came to those conclusions, you do feel the heat. And you know, on those moments, you can hear people say, Oh, why can't you just stop? So we continue. Um, and I remember at one point, it became even a personal attack. Um, we've had protests in front of Amnesty International Nigeria's offices a few times. But following um, one of the reports um, on um, the NSARS, And Amnesty was the first organization, after uh, the brutal repression of protesters and the shooting and the killings at lekki Togate on 20th of October, 2020, were the first to actually come out and say at least 10 people died at Lekki, and two in Alausa. So that's 12 people in Lagos, uh, a few days after the incident happened outpouring of you know messages was huge I remember being bombarded with phone calls even with friends as in CSO saying are you sure why you in Lagos we know you're in Abuja did you count them how many bodies did you count? okay give us names they said give us names people are saying rubbish in the in the whatsapp group I'm in give us names and I was like we can't give you anybody's names without their consent secondly it's not really about whether we've identified who those people are, but that we have confirmation that they were bodies. And it was a scary time because you could easily have been picked for lying, for creating unrest. And I remember when I had to sign off that press release with the number, um, it was in the evening. I'd gotten a call, the press release was ready. I looked at it, I saw the numbers, I remember speaking to the researchers, speaking to the managers and saying, what do you guys think? I've seen all the evidence you've produced and they said, yeah, we think we're ready. And I had to stop for a few minutes because I knew it could be anything in Nigeria. It was evening time, I was looking out of the window, people were moving about their business. Of course, people were still in shock about what they saw, those that saw the life and those that heard and then those that were in, you know, so everybody was in it and I was like, this can go the wrong way. Are you absolutely sure, Osai, that you want to sign and approve this press release? It means I had to rely on colleagues, expertise, um, rely on things that I haven't seen with my own eyes, but which I have the evidence in my hands. And I told myself, you've got to do the right thing. Um, it's scary, and I've heard someone say before that, you also do it afraid. If you are convicted in your spirit that you are doing the right thing and you have the evidence to back it, do it even if you are afraid. And I just prayed and I said, God, don't let this country burn or let the truth prevail. And then I called them and I said, I have approved and then I went home to sleep because I know I need to prepare uh, myself for the constant um, intrusion, the request for media interviews and everything thereafter. And that's another thing as um, a leader, I learned early on because you can anticipate certain things. You need to prepare for it. So I didn't go home, switch on the TV and everything. I just went home and slept because I know I will need the energy for the next couple of days or weeks, which was what now transpired. And it it became a whirlwind after that. Then we released another report about the satellite imagery that silenced them a bit. Then they now came with a personal attack. So there are a group of people that are sympathetic to the government. So they came, held press conferences. We of course you knew there was riots after the ENSARS and this lady went on air and said, "Mention my name and said we would met onto you." Yeah, the same assault that led to the riots after the answers um, togate saga, and everybody was calling me from everywhere. Oh, are you safe? Do you need to? For the first time, we had to activate our emergency. Um, security plans. Uh, We shut down the office. We had shut down the office several times because of COVID, but now we had to shut down, get everybody. And then there was concerns about my safety, concerns about the safety of my family. We had to go over all the things that needed to be done. The UN were also quite good here because they reached out and said, we've gotten these complaints. Are you safe? Is there anything we can do? And they immediately put an urgent letter to the Nigerian government And at that point in time was also another time where I felt very alone because even though people had sent messages of solidarity, they were not facing the kind of threats I was facing. I used the moment when I was um, underground, if I can call it that, because I had to go off. uh, I had to um, wait until the storm calmed down to just reflect a lot in terms of the way I work, how I work, with where I work. How this kind of stressful situations can have an impact on me, on my health, on my family, and to find ways through which I could cope better, and also to get more people to walk and stand with amnesty at this point. Because I told myself, okay, if at least we told the UN or the press that this was going to come out, maybe the response would not be more in terms of, oh, can we say how to protect you? But it would be more around, oh, we stand by this report or we are aware of this information. Um, so I started thinking a lot more about how can, what can, what else can I do and what else can Amnesty do to make sure that um, on such complex and sensitive issues like this that we already know these sort of things can can happen. We're always ready to, you know, challenge the government because we know that they could react this way, it could be an arrest, it could be an invitation. But we are never ready to respond when it's someone who feels aggrieved about our reports and has taken it upon themselves to challenge you.
1: Knowing what you know and what you have seen, what keeps you
2: going? Uh, For me, um, there there are a few things uh, that brings a smile to my face, like... When someone is released from prison and they tell you, oh, it's because Amnesty did this for me, it tells you that things can happen. Um, Of course, I'd want it to be at a larger scale. Like I keep telling people, of course, if we write a letter to the IG and complain about something, they'll be a bit more cautious about how they treat that detainee, maybe if the person was at risk of torture, they wouldn't want to touch the person because they know Amnesty would investigate. But I don't want it to be because Amnesty wrote. It should be normal that when you have a detainee, you don't torture them. You carry out your investigation. And then when you reach the statutory limit of 24, 48 hours, depending on where your detention center is, you let the person go and you do your follow-ups as it should. Um, It's really about treating people with dignity and treating ourselves a lot better.
1: Uh, So, just briefly, what what advice would you give someone interested in getting into this space, the human rights space? Like, what would you say to that person?
2: Um, Begin to intern, volunteer, let people know that you're interested in these areas and then understand the sector. Don't be... jack of all trades it's good to read up about everything but as you discover yourself within this sector try to find areas that have meaning to you and you can make your mark not just because your friend is there or it pays the bills because ultimately this sector is about creating change and change does not happen quickly it's a marathon so if you're expecting solutions to happen quickly you get burnt out or disillusioned and then you leave and then you hear things like oh i thought it was like this is not what i expected you need to stay the whole hall.
1: one word what's activism to you
2: oh activism to me is action
0: we hope that this conversation has been enlightening and has given you a deeper understanding of the human rights challenges confronting our society. We firmly believe that safeguarding and advancing human rights is pivotal in building a fair and equitable community, and we urge you to get involved and join the movement by becoming a supporter. To start, send us a WhatsApp at plus +2349085998230. That is plus +2349085998230.